Browns, your daily Cleveland Browns podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Hello, everybody. It is Monday night, episode 109 of Locked On Browns. I am your host, Jeff Lloyd, on Twitter, at Jeff underscore LJ underscore Lloyd. Also, follow the Locked On Browns Twitter account, guys. Please, I appreciate all the feedback, all the questions you guys keep sending over that way. Uh, look, over the last three episodes, we have had the highest traffic on this uh, podcast that is since it's been in existence, since we got into the new format, things have become a lot easier as far as bringing in guests and recording angle of it. I'm just trying to do the best I can here for you guys. Like I said, I want this show to be your show. Uh, tonight, uh, obviously, uh, you know, back here from the bye week. Um, so, you know, a little bit of a quietness, um, maybe after Tuesday and after the trade deadline, a couple of days over the weekend, now the games have established, a little bit of quietness, but look, it's back to business here. Um, you know, since I've taken this role on, um, you know, following the beat writers, you know, reading their work and stuff like that, one of the guys I've grown to appreciate from Cleveland.com, Dan Lobby. Uh, Dan, thanks so much for joining us here tonight for a few minutes. Um, first things first, how are you? How's everything on the Cleveland beat? How's life treating you? How's your bye week? I'm, I'm doing good, Jeff. It was good to uh, to kind of get out of the uh, out of the rhythm of that NFL week uh, to kind of step away from everything. And you know, even with with everything that was going on last week, it was good to sort of get out of that. You know, with the Browns playing every game on Sunday at one, every week is kind of the same, honestly. So it was good to kind of get out of that. That I don't want to call it a rut, but get out of that that rotation for a little bit and, and kind of reassess things. I gotcha. And again, appreciate you taking some time for us today. Um, look. Uh, a couple of big pressers today. You know, Sashi giving his State of the Union. Hugh, obviously speaking. Um, I, I guess go ahead and start with Sashi. I mean, obviously, look, uh, people wanted this to be a lot more juicy. It was never going to be that juicy. You know, I don't think, you know, the way everything is going, even if there is some disharmony, nobody was going to point any fingers. But uh, I guess we'll start with Sashi's press conference. Give me some takes what you took from that today. Well, it was certainly far removed from the sweaty Ray Farmer press conference we had a few years ago. Uh, so, so that was that was encouraging. But, you know, I, I think it was a very, uh, you know, it wasn't exactly a mea culpa, but it was a little bit of, you know, hey, we've made some mistakes. Um, you know, we're, we're trying to figure out, you know, exactly what went wrong with some of those mistakes. But it was also still Sashi very solidly, solidly as you as you would expect. Um defending the plan, talking about the way things are set up in 2018 with, with the draft and, and cap space and, you know, stating that they do have a plan for the offseason they plan to execute. So, you know, I think it was a little bit of both sides of him kind of not just outright admitting some mistakes, but also acknowledging there have been mistakes and then also still saying still staying steadfast in the plan. Nothing you really wouldn't expect to hear, but but I think that's kind of what I came away with. Well, and one of the things here now, um, look, you know, obviously the hot talk, you know, the last three weeks had been, you know, the passing on to Sean Watson. And, and look, sometimes you know, with an organization, you get into a spot where it's, it's do or die. Now, imagine if they did have Deshaun Watson. He looked fantastic for three weeks. And then this catastrophe of an injury came. And now here was a guy who had a little bit of an injury history. It would have been almost same old Cleveland. They pick a guy who was broke down. I mean, sometimes you're in a situation where, you know, damned if you do, damned if you don't. No. Uh, well, you know, I, th- I think there would have been a little bit of that, but I, I do think that if if Watson had come out and, and played the way he has with Houston, and, and I certainly think 
you know, the performance wouldn't have been as great had he been drafted here. But but I do think he would have performed well here. I do think there are some holes in Houston. You know, obviously Houston's receiving core is better. Uh, but the Browns' offensive line is better, for example. So I think there's some areas where the Browns could say they're better off than Houston. Um, and certainly a lot of areas where Houston could say they're better off than the Browns. But um, I, I do think had Watson come here and had he performed well, had he shown that he can be part of the future, I think the narrative would have been more more along the lines of, well, you know, look, there's some more bad luck for Cleveland. Cleveland's just not allowed to have nice things. Certainly there probably would have been some people who would have said, well, this is a guy who's torn his ACL before, um, some things like that. But I do think the narrative would have been more, you know, poor Cleveland. They, they finally maybe find a guy, and then he tears his ACL in a non-contact drill. Okay, so they would have went ahead and uh, went ahead and threw together another five minutes to the uh, Cleveland thirty for thirty, right? <laughs> exactly. Some somebody would have found footage of that drill, I'm sure, and run it in slow motion over and over again. Okay, and uh, your takes from uh, what Hugh had to say today about uh, I guess it was you know five thirty six o'clock. Yeah, he was not very interested in talking about last week. He kind of let Sashi's words stand on its own. I, I thought. You know, Hugh probably did have some opportunities to uh, to maybe say that the relationship was fine, that there everything's fine between the front office and coaching staff. He did not say anything. Um, you know, you wonder if maybe you you kind of read into that silence a little bit. But uh, you know, I Hugh really was focused on getting this team back into game week and, and getting ready for Detroit, and he really didn't want to talk about last week. Okay, and um, the Josh Gordon article today, uh, GQ. Um, look, you know, I mean, I, some people, you know, took it as shock, but I mean, look, I mean, what people don't understand is, is, you know, Josh Gordon was, you know, a full blown addict. So the fact that he would get into a pressure situation and would lean back on what's gotten him through, you know, maybe the years of, you know, 16 to 24, 25, for me, doesn't seem so much of a surprise. Uh, what, what was maybe the overall thought on that, you know, and, and Josh, and obviously, look, somebody had to know he was, this was going to be released, no? You know, I'm sure somebody had to know it was coming. And, and I thought it was interesting that the interview happened, uh, you know, according to the first few paragraphs, the interview happened before he went and spoke to Roger Goodell. But, um, you know, I think between this and then the uninterrupted video, it really kind of shows what Josh Gordon was going through, what he was dealing with from an addiction standpoint. And obviously some of those choices were, were his own choices as well. Um, but I, I think it should reinforce the fact that, you know, it's real easy to say, look at what Josh Gordon did, you know, way back in 2013, what he did in the preseason in 2016, when, he, you know, even a little bit out of shape, even a little bit rusty, he still was really good. I just think it, it's important to look at these and, and remember that, He's dealing with real addictions and, and he's dealing with, you know, a real, you know, whatever you want to call it, a disease. I, I mean, is really what, what most people refer to it as. And it's something that's always going to be there. It's something that doesn't just make it as easy as put him back out on the field and he'll perform. Um, it, there, there is a much bigger issue here that he needs to work through, that the Browns need to work through before they can put him on the field. That the NFL needs to make sure that they see, hey, this guy is on the right track. Um, obviously the, the wheels are in motion right now, but I think we, we need to be able to pump the brakes a little bit and understand. And I think that's why it's good that this information is out there. Uh, we've got to pump the brakes and understand that this guy has a lot of work to do before he can be on the field on a consistent basis and performing. Well, let me ask you this then. Um, you know, basically the way it's worked out is, is if he checks, checks all the boxes and everything works out, he's basically granted the last month of the season. 
you know, if you are in that front office, are you going to let him play those four weeks? Or do you say, you know what, prove it to me for one more month and you want to know what, hopefully I see you in April and, you know, you are a part of this franchise? You know, that's an interesting decision, an interesting question they're going to have to answer. And, and I think they're just in a position where they are going to have to at least let him play and, and at least see what he can do. Now, uh, with the way this was set up and, you know, probably intentionally so, even if they play him that first week against Los Angeles and let him play out the season, he's only going to get five games. He's not going to get that year uh, vested so because you need to have six weeks active on that. So th- that's going to work out in the Browns' favor. Um, I-, I just think they're in a position where they're going to have to see what he can do. Now, does that mean they put him on the field against L.A., or do they wait until they get some of these games at home? Uh, you know, they've got uh, Green Bay at home. Uh, I'm kind of blanking on that whole December schedule, to be honest. I know they have a couple games at home before they go to Chicago on Christmas Eve. So I think they can take their time with this. But I do think they need to put him on the field and see how he performs on the field. Uh, you know, look, their receiving core, we know the state of that. I think they need to see how he works with Corey Coleman. I think they need to see, they need to give Deshaun Kaiser a chance to play, you know, with some better weapons. And Josh Gordon could be a part of that. I still think we're a ways away from being able to say, okay, he's going to get on the field this year. But I do think if he kind of passes all the tests and checks all those boxes, they do need to put him on the field at some point this season. I think, and I, I agree with you, and I've, I've heard it, you know, I've heard it both ways, but you you need to see where he's at at a football standpoint. I mean, people, you know, I mean, my daughter was eight. She's about to be 11 the last time Josh Gordon took <laughs> NFL snaps. I mean, you need to see what's left. And look, and even if he is 75, 80% of what he used to be, it's a damn good wide receiver, and it's a productive wide receiver in the NFL. And look, you know, when you're dealing with people with addiction, it's, Look, it, it, it's your mistake. It's your problem, child. He comes home. You want to love him, and you know you're going to treat him like he's part of the family. So if he's ready to go, you know you got to see what you have there. Uh, Locked on Browns. Uh, thanks so much to uh, Dan Lobby for joining us here this evening, guys. This is going to be a great time. Go ahead, subscribe, rate to Locked On Browns. Give me that five star review. I'd uh, so much appreciate it. Uh, Dan, as far as everything else, look, the team is zero and eight. Now, me, I'm a newcomer here to this with this show and covering the Browns on a daily basis. I think it's a pretty good product that they're putting out every Sunday. Look, the offense doesn't match the defense. Where would you say the morale of this team is right now? You know, I I think when the losing starts to pile up, I I think it really does wear on guys. (laughs) I think it really, you know, and I think we're starting to see it a little bit with the front office and the coaching staff where some of these things are, you know, we're starting to see some cracks there. And, and I just think when you go out and you lose every single week, I mean, these guys are putting in work every week. They're showing up to the facility early, you know, they're, they're leaving late. Uh, they're, they're, they're doing everything they need to do from a film study standpoint. And I just think losing wears on guys and, and it's hard to sustain. I think one of the most impressive things actually last year was through everything that happened, they were able to sustain kind of you know decent team chemistry. Guys were kind of holding together. No, none of the players were really questioning Hugh Jackson like we saw with you know as the Mike Pettin era was starting to come to an end. There, there were guys that were actually publicly questioning some of the decisions he was making. But I, I don't know how sustainable that is. Eventually, you do need to start winning games, and and you've got to show these guys that the work they're putting in it matters. It, it's resulting in victories, and and not just coming close 
but actually winning some of these games. And, and that's where this team needs to get to. I, I know a lot of people might say, oh, what does one win matter? What does two wins matter? I do think winning a game or two does matter for the, the morale of this locker room and, and for this franchise. No, and I agree. I think the Jets game was very winnable. I think when it was close, uh, you know, and they went for it on the fourth and two, they should have kicked the field goal. I thought the defense was playing lights out. They maybe put themselves in a winnable position there. Uh, the Minnesota game in London, obviously the score ended up being lopsided. But I, I think if Cleveland had their full defense that day, I think Cleveland may have had a shot at winning that game. And Minnesota, I mean, obviously a very solid team. I think they're close. I, I, I think they're going to end up with maybe two to three wins here over this next second half. As long as the defense, you get everybody and all those guys there every week. So I do think there's some bright spots here. Um, uh, Miles Garrett, uh, Jabril Peppers, David Najoku. How are, you know, obviously a lot invested. There's a lot counting on these three guys, obviously, as all his first-round picks. How are they handling Cleveland? How are they handling the team and the culture right now, in your opinion? Uh, I mean, I'll I'll tell you this about Miles Garrett. He is everything you want in a first-round pick. I I think on the field... We've seen when he's been able to play, even not at 100%, he's been incredible. Uh, the the get-off, uh, his ability to get into the backfield, his ability to, to kind of wreck a game. You know, those two sacks against the Jets, both came on third down. He, he brings pressure. There was a play against Deshaun Watson where he got held and, and taken down. It pulled out a flag, and he still was able to chase down Deshaun Watson and make the tackle. Um, we're seeing the things that made Miles Garrett the number one pick. And the other the other element of it is, when you hear him talk, I mean, I thought he was great when he was talking about coming off a concussion and, and kind of how important it was to him to self-report um, and, and why he wanted to do that and, and why it mattered to him that he's going to be able to, you know, grow older and have kids and, and be involved in his kids' lives. It's things like that that make you realize this dude is really smart and this dude is the type of guy that you want to be the face of, of your franchise to some level. Uh, obviously, you want a quarterback at some point to be that, but, but Miles Garrett is a guy that you can have out there. He's everything you want out of a number one pick. As far as those other number ones, Jabril Peppers, we just haven't seen him really kind of deliver yet, and it's still incredibly early, and I think he's playing out of position, sort of out of necessity. 100%. Uh, I'm curi- yeah, I'm, I'm curious if this time where he's been out and they've put – some other guys in that position allows uh, allows Greg Williams to maybe play him more at strong safety, move him into the box a little more. That's when we'll really kind of get a feel about what kind of player Jabril Peppers is going to be. And then David Njoku, incredibly raw. The early returns, obviously, he can make some catches. A little questionable in the blocking game. I, th- I think that's kind of what has kept his snap count a little bit low. But uh, on a team that needs weapons, he's shown the ability to, that he can go get the football. You know, there's development there for him to go from being a guy that can make an occasional splash play to being a guy that can just consistently put pressure on defenses. That That's going to take time to grow. We don't know if he's going to get there or not, but certainly the potential is there uh, with David Njoku. It's just going to be about developing it. Okay. No, and I agree. Uh, look, I think Njoku needs more reps. And the other thing is, is look, when you're 0-8, I mean, play every drop of youth you have. <laughs> For me, what I've talked about is the four Ds, Deshaun, Duke, DeValve, uh, and obviously David. This is, you know, you know this is a part of your future. You know, obviously there'll be competition brought in for Deshaun. When you have this much capital, you should bring it in. But look, these guys deserve as many reps as possible offensively. Um, real quick, just a you know, quick one. Uh, the Kenny Britt signing, is it okay to move on from Kenny Britt like today, tomorrow? 
<laughs> I I think they should have probably done it last week. I mean, when when you take a guy to London and basically take him there to not even give him a snap, it's very telling about what you think of him. And especially when it's to get a guy like Bryce Treggs. And, and this is nothing against Bryce Treggs. I mean, he's he's a guy that has worked his way through practice squads. The Browns want, really wanted to bring him in. Philadelphia actually wanted to keep him. They were willing to pay him. Uh, an NFL minimum salary just to keep him on their practice squad. That's how much they liked him. Uh, and he decided to come to the Browns because he could play here. Uh, so, so he's a guy who's intriguing. But if he's taking reps away and you want to get a look at him more than you want to play your big free agent signing, I just think it's very telling about where you are with that guy. Um, he, he's not particularly great when it comes to the locker room. Um, I, I'm not sure really how he is as a mentor. Um, I just don't know why you keep him around at this point, but so far they are keeping him around and they're going to keep giving him opportunities. I am curious though, and this is something to keep an eye on. I'm curious to see how much Hugh Jackson suits him up, how often he gets on the field. And that could, that could kind of give you some idea of, of who it is that wants to keep him around, whether it's the coaching staff that wants to keep him around or whether it's the front office that's saying, no, we're keeping this guy, even if you guys aren't going to play him. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, from New Jersey, you know, seeing Kenny Britt through his Rutgers career, there's good Kenny Britt and there's bad Kenny Britt. <laughs> and it, it, it's resurfaced pretty much every stop along the way. Yeah. And look, for, when you have a, you know, a locker room full of as many young players as Cleveland does, and the worst thing, you know, was about bringing him to Cleveland and suiting him up, I mean, bringing him to London and suiting him up and letting him watch was he complained the entire way about going <laughs> to England. I mean, it just come on, you, you know. Look, just cut your losses. You have the cap space. Eat the couple of million. Just let him go. Yeah, I, I mean, and it's so hard at this point to think that he's going to be able to rescue anything. You know, I mean, he's had some opportunities to to make some plays. Um, you know, against the Titans in overtime, he had an opportunity to make a catch for Cody Kessler, and then he didn't do it. Um, these, these are things you expect your, you know, whether it's your number one or number two receiver, obviously with Coleman out, you'd hope you'd be your number one receiver at this point. Um, he's not doing it on the field. It doesn't seem to be happening off the field as well. And I do think you have to be wary of culture because you do have such a young locker room and, and you don't want guys to kind of fall into that, uh, fall into any of these traps that may be, you know, just seeing a guy who's showing up and, and cashing some checks might uh, might influence them as, as they see it. So, you know, I think they have to be careful in this scenario, and I, and I think they have to make a decision on Kenny Britt. But as of right now, I mean, they've gone through the bye week. They're halfway through the season. He's still on the roster. Uh, somebody in this building still believes he can contribute for this team. Or they just don't want to admit a loss. <laughs> Well, well, yeah, <laughs> there there could be that too, and and I think we'll probably find that out over these next eight weeks. Okay, um, Deshaun Kaiser, uh, it, it's been a tough thing for him because him being announced a starter where he was in August, and Hugh saying, "Look, I understand he's young. I understand he's going to make mistakes. We're going to deal with all of this." And then once the mistakes started to arise, you know, getting pulled, and you know, Deshaun came from a rocky situation at Notre Dame with Brian Kelly. How, how do you feel he's handling all of this? And look, you know, every week he gets pulled and then he gets reannoyed about to be in the starter. How's he holding up? I, I think Kaiser has handled things very well. Um, he, he's, a, he's a really mature kid for, for only being 21 years old, uh, for coming from the, I think actually the situation at Notre Dame helped him a lot, dealing with that on such a big stage for such a significant program. Uh, I, I think that has helped him through a lot of this. Uh, he, he knows how to say the right things. He's, he's incredibly smart. 
and you can just tell that, you know, just like anybody would, he really, he really wants this job. He really wants it to work out. He wants to be the long-term answer. You know, I think on Hugh Jackson's side of things, you're looking at a situation where, again, you're winless and, and you're trying to find opportunities to win games. So you grasp, you grasp at straws a little bit. You give Kevin Hogan a start that he probably shouldn't have gotten. Uh, your quarterback starts turning the ball over, misses some open receivers, You know, isn't seeing the field the way you'd like him to see it. So you put him on the bench. It's not great for his development necessarily, but when you're winless, if you're feeling a little pressure, you do sort of start grasping at straws. And, and I think we've seen that with Hugh Jackson. I think that's sort of been what, is, what has been driving here. I, I don't think he expected kaiser to struggle as much as he has because i even asked him before the season you know because you picked him to be your starter do you just have to live with some of the big mistakes he'll make and hugh jackson said yeah but he's going to make some big plays too and unfortunately we just haven't seen enough of of the latter and i think hugh jackson has kind of seen that as well I think Kaiser is going to be the guy the rest of the way, but you know, if, if they're close to winning a game and Kaiser is turning the ball over again, I'm curious to see how Jackson approaches that. Well, I mean, it also doesn't help Deshaun that you know when you paid Kenny Britt this money and you had Corey <laughs> Coleman, who was a you know a first round pick, and obviously Corey's injury, you know, you know his problem is injury related. When you're out there with basically wide receivers that you picked up off the scrap heap in August, it puts you in a tough spot. No. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And you know, you had a situation where Rashard Higgins, you know, came off the practice squad and was the most targeted wide receiver immediately in that next game um, against Baltimore. So, yeah, the weapons really aren't there. And this is a guy that we kind of knew what the Browns were getting when they drafted him out of Notre Dame. We knew he was kind of raw. We knew there were issues with turnovers. We knew there were, you know, his completion percentage dropped when he didn't have the weapons that he had his his the year before. So you kind of knew some of the flaws you were getting with Deshaun Kaiser and some of the things you were going to have to live with. And I don't think we've seen anything that we didn't expect. I, I think maybe Hugh Jackson felt like maybe he coached some of that out of him quickly. Uh, but when you're in this situation and you don't have a ton of weapons and guys are coming at you, sometimes you kind of fall back into old habits a little bit. Yeah. And for me, look, uh, you know, I follow the draft process, process big. I was huge on Deshaun Kaiser. The one thing I understood was is his short, uh, his short area accuracy was a problem. Mm-hmm. And you look at this team; he is throwing, you know, seventy five percent of his passes are five yards or less, by, you know, from the line of scrimmage. So you know, it's not really the greatest marriage right now. <laughs> and look, I understand if you don't have the weapons to go deep, you're not going to call the plays to go deep. So it just seems like it's a little bit rocky right now. But as far as you know, moving on to twenty eighteen. Uh, is the current structure between the front office, between Hugh, is is everybody going to be here come mid-January? You know, I, I think at least one part of that equation is going to be gone. Um, as far as who that's going to be, I, I still think it's it's very much up in the air. But, you know, it's it's hard for me to, to believe that this marriage can continue into another season. I, I think there's been enough tension at this point. I think there's enough of a disconnect at this point that it's just really difficult for me to believe that this group as a whole, you know, head coach in front office or coaching staff in front office is going to come back in its entirety. The ownership is going to make some kind of decision. And then, and then you get into, okay, if you keep the head coach and fire the front office, well, what are you going to do you know, for that, that front office structure? 
because they're going to come in and they aren't going to be able to hire their head coach. Um, if, if you get rid of your head coach, who's going to be the guy that you bring in to work under this front office? Is it going to be, you know, are they going to look for a Sean McVay type or, or something like that to maybe uh, a, a younger, you know, Sean McVay, basically look for another Sean McVay like LA has found. Um, you know, I, I just don't think both sides are going to come back. And then, of course, you've got this whole situation that's starting to emerge with, with Peyton Manning. I don't know how legitimate that is, but it was a little weird seeing how Tony Dungy uh, approached that answer to, on, the, on the Dan Patrick show. If he were to come in, you know, how does that change things? So I just think there's a lot of questions that are going to have to be answered between now and the end of the season. And again, if you can win some games, maybe that takes some pressure off of those relationships. Maybe guys start to feel a little bit better about themselves. But I just don't know that I see the whole group coming back at the end of the year. You know, and and, and see the thing I, I I look at Hugh and look, even if you know the AJ McCarron trade, you know he wanted to chase a couple of wins. I don't think there's a big difference between one and thirty one, three and twenty nine, two and thirty. Look, you're, <laughs> there's no difference there record wise. What would help him is Deshaun looking good. Is yeah. even that joke looking good? You know, the offense, even though he's void of weapons, you know, the guys who, you know, everybody looks at and knows they are sustainable talents and are going to be part of this, those guys looking good. The front office, what I look at is, is they put out, they built a pretty good defense. The defense is pretty solid. Look, uh, Greg Williams obviously wants this, you know, deep free safety that he does not have on his roster right now. And I can understand that. And that's where I understand the talk of Malik Hooker was maybe something that Hugh thought, you know, would be great for this defense. It didn't happen. So, you know, but otherwise, you know, now uh, Joe Thomas got more money. They've solidified the offensive line between the capital they have, which is, what, $80 million in cap space for 18. Um, Deshaun Watson, as terrible as his injury was, it is a huge, huge advantage to Cleveland, who is probably looking at four picks in the top 40 of the 2018 NFL drafts. It's real easy to, you know, fill in skill talent with, you know, that type of capital. So it, it's going to be interesting, you know, and if for me, from the standpoint I'm looking at is just let the front office finish this third year. Look, if everybody gets along and they can move on, that's great. But if you do need to replace the head coach, I mean, I would elevate Greg Williams and Greg has a long enough track record, knows enough people that I would say, Greg, you know, who do you like? Who do you think is a good enough offensive guy? You know, something of that nature. Uh, you know, maybe the guy from the Giants may be available. He can come in and just coach <laughs> offense. But, uh, you know, it's that type of thing. Before I let you go here, Dan, there's one thing I want to ask you. For me, a guy from New Jersey, new to this whole type of thing, what is the greatest part of a Cleveland Browns home game? Oh, boy. I, I mean, right now it, it's got to be the pregame. It, it's got to be the, uh, the tailgating at, the, at this point. Um, okay. You know, you got the Muni lot. It's a fun place to be, especially early in the year when, you know, expectations are still high. Absolutely. The weather is really nice. You've still kind of got that summer weather hanging on. Um, maybe I shouldn't say expectations are high, but people haven't been beaten down by, by losing at that point. Um, it, it's just a really fun, crazy, wild place to be. You've got the Muni lot. There's the pit, too, which is kind of on the other side of the stadium. Uh, you know, there's some really great places to just have some fun before the game. And, you know, that's really kind of been where Browns fans have had the most fun uh, is, is before the game. So, so that's kind of the best, 
the best fan experience. And, and the Browns have actually done some things in-game, I think, to make the fan experience better. It just all feels really empty right now because the product on the field hasn't matched you know, what they've tried to do from a presentation standpoint. But it's all about the tailgate right now for this team. And, and that's sort of been the way it's been since they came back in 99. It's all about the Muni lot, the pit, all those other places that people like to go and have fun before the game. And see, and you know what, where I can go with that is obviously, you know, uh, you know uh, Thursday night. Now the Jets, look, I had them, I was team tank, lose every stinking game, rebuild everything you can. <laughs> um, here they are a few days away from possibly going 5-5. Five and five. But you saw it Thursday night. You know, in between quarters, the music's blaring, the defense is dancing, the stadium is rocking. You know, you, you just you want something where the team and the fan base is. And I don't think I don't think the Browns are that far off. I really don't. But you just want that moment where everybody's like, you know what? It's going to be all right. Things are going to get better. <laughs> there, there were some moments like that when this team started seven and four a few a few seasons ago. And Brian Hoyer, uh, yeah, they Hoyer. came. They came back from Cincinnati after a uh, a win, a Thursday night win. They were six and three. They were in first place. Uh, everybody felt great to go going into this game against the Texans. They laid an egg against the Texans, but um, you know there was a game earlier in the season against Pittsburgh where Brian Hoyer and company beat the Steelers. And I mean, I'll tell you, it, it was so early in the year, and everybody was still a little unsure how real everything was, but. That feeling and that vibe when, when the product on the field is just, it, it's what you want to see. You know, there's nothing like it. And, and Cleveland fans, of course, or Browns fans especially, are so hungry to see that. Uh, yeah, how, how close they are, you know, I don't know. Uh, they have a lot of assets coming up. Whoever gets to use those assets is going to have a lot of opportunities to make this team better. Um, but it, it would be great if fans could go have some fun before the game and then go watch some football that really matters over at First Energy Stadium. I mean, this fan base really deserves that. Absolutely. Uh, Dan Lobby here on Locked On Browns, episode 109, your Monday night edition. Dan, thanks so much. Uh, and, hey, let's go Browns. Hey, thanks for having me. All right, buddy. We'll talk soon. Bye. Yep.